Friends, we are going to move in, uh, more deeply into the world, the word that Patrick has given us a glimpse of. A couple weeks ago, we were in the very last chapters of Genesis in the story of Joseph and his brothers as their family um, was moving to Egypt, which is where they settled. You may remember that he was a high-ranking official um, who saved the land from famine, and so they settle alongside the Egyptians. Um, this morning's story picks up at the beginning of Exodus, and there's a gap of, you know, maybe a couple generations. There's a, a, a significant gap in years, and as the story begins, a new pharaoh, a new king has come to power, who, as the King James says, who knew not Joseph, who forgets Joseph. Um, and we'll see that this is the start of the story of Exodus, the story of God's liberation of God's people from Egypt. So um, it's a long scripture. It's a great story. So I invite you to listen with these two questions in mind at the story, at the beginning of the story of God's liberating work. Who is there? Who is there at the very beginning doing the work of liberation? And then second, how are they doing it? And Sarah and Maureen are going to come and read our scripture. Sarah? Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of them was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you act as midwives to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, she shall live. But the midwives feared God. They did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they did let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and allowed the boys to live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every boy that is born to the Hebrews, you shall throw into the Nile, but you shall let every girl live. Now a man from the house of Levi met and married a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine baby, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and plastered it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it, and placed it among the reeds on the bank of the river. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. 
The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river while her attendants walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid to bring it. When she opened it, she saw the child. He was crying and she took pity on him. This must be one of the Hebrews' children, she said. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Yes. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed it. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. We celebrate the written word of scripture. Thanks be to God. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Holy God, thank you for your living, liberating word present among us now. May we listen with eager ears that we might live lives that set the whole world free. Amen. This is the beginning of the Exodus story, the story of God's liberating action in the world as God hears the cry of God's people in Egypt and brings them out of bondage and into freedom. It's a story of liberation, so it's not surprising that it begins in a world of oppression. A new king has risen to power in Egypt. He's watched this Hebrew people thrive, and their very thriving becomes for him an imagined threat. And so he enslaves them. As we enter into this story, we see a world of slavery. We see a world where a people who have settled in the land are singled out, named as different and oppressed. We see a despot who stirs up fear of the other as a means for solidifying his own power. We see government action to kill the children of this people, a genocidal plan. And we see the systemic impact of all that, the structures of oppression that emerge as these Hebrew people are worked harder and harder with no wage for their work, building storehouses for Pharaoh. At the very beginning of the story, the first words that Sarah read, we discover that one of the things that has gone wrong here is that Pharaoh, this Pharaoh, has forgotten his history, has forgotten their history. A new king arose who knew not Joseph. Pharaoh forgets how generations before these two peoples had lived together and survived famine together. He forgets their humanity and their story, and that allows him to rewrite this other world, this world that sees the other as enemy and oppresses and kills. So lest we forget too, it might be good for us at the outset to remember our history to remember and name our own history of slavery, the slavery that plagued this nation at its inception and whose reverberations have echoed down over the generations. If we remember our history, we might see how our dominant culture has singled out and marginalized those who are different again and again. 
we might see our leaders past and present as they demonize those they label as foreign to maintain their own power. We might see how our own government, national, local, cages children and kills young women and men. We might see the systems we have put in place to keep all this going, unjust economic systems, education systems, policing systems, incarceration systems, all interconnected. If we consider their history in this scripture and ours, we might see in their world a reflection of our own, if we remember. But then also remember, this is a story of liberation, a story of how God enters into all this and leads a people out into freedom. And this story begins with five women. It begins with the midwives, Shifra and Pua, and a sister and a mother and a daughter. The sister we know to be Miriam. The mother of Moses, we will find out, is Jochebed. And the daughter of Pharaoh will later be given the Hebrew name by the Hebrew people, Bacha, Shifra, Pua, Miriam, Jochebed, and Bacha. These five women are, as my friend Rabbi Meredith Kahn loves to say, they are the women who started the revolution. A king has come to power who knows not Joseph, and he becomes deathly afraid of the Hebrew people. There's no reason given except that they're living and thriving and free. And so the king stirs up this fear and enslaves them and then sets out to kill them all. He does this by inviting the Hebrew midwives to come before him, Shifra and Pua, and commanding them that when they are with the Hebrew mothers and their sons are born, while the mothers are still on the birthing stool, the midwives are to kill the mother's sons. But Shifra and Pua, in their hearts and later in their bodies, say no. They, live with, they leave their meeting with Pharaoh, and the next day, or maybe the day after that, they're called to the birthing room. They coach the mother, reminding her to breathe. And when the baby is born, they hear Pharaoh's command, and in their hearts, or maybe out loud, they say no. And the babies live. Now, Pharaoh doesn't like this one bit, so he calls Shifra and Pua in. The stakes are high. They've disobeyed Pharaoh's command, and he rages at them, demanding to know what has happened. Shifra and Pua give their best shrug and say, gosh, those Hebrew women are so strong. They managed to give birth all on their own before midwives can even get there. Pharaoh's plan fails, and the Hebrew babies live. Then we have Miriam, Jochebed, and Bacha. Frustrated with his first plan, this mad pharaoh comes up with a second. All of the baby boys are now to be thrown into the river and drowned. And Jochebed gives birth to Moses, and all Jochebed and Miriam can do is to build this little boat for him, a basket, an ark, and set him afloat in the reeds and hope. And there's Pharaoh's daughter, bathing on the shore, and she sees the baby. 
she has her servants pull the basket out of the water and she knows he is Hebrew, which means she knows that there is a royal command that he be killed. Then Bacha sees his sister Miriam and Miriam asks, shall I find someone to nurse him? And Bacha thinks and says, yes, please do. Yochebed nurses Moses, her son, and Bacha then takes him into Pharaoh's own palace and raises him as her own, and he lives. These five women resist and thwart Pharaoh's genocidal plans. They save the Hebrew people. They save Moses. There is no Moses without them. There is no Exodus without them. They are the women who start the revolution. Now, how in the world do they do that? Well, to answer that, we first have to do our power analysis. We have to understand the power at work here in this text to understand how it is resisted and how it is dismantled. And we have to do that using the lens of what law professor Kimberly Crenshaw has called intersectionality. Intersectionality recognizes that there are always multiple forces of power and privilege at work, race, gender, economic status, and so on. And you've got to name and understand how they are at work before you can do the work of unraveling, resisting, and dismantling. So here, all five of these women are women. They are women living in a patriarchal system, so that is a first system of oppression that is at work against every one of them. Shifra and Pua, the midwives, are also Hebrew. They are women living in a patriarchal culture, and they are women living in slavery. But in this story, they are also given a sliver of power and privilege by Pharaoh. Pharaoh assigns them a task and gives them power over the lives of newborn Hebrew children. They are Hebrew women, but they have this power of life and death over that child, a power that the child's Hebrew mother and the Hebrew child do not have. Then you have Yochebed and Miriam. They are women and Hebrew with no special privilege. They have the least power and privilege in these systems of oppression. So in the story, their action of resistance, floating the baby out into the reeds, it comes with this hope, this hope of connecting somehow with some power. And there's Bacha, Pharaoh's daughter. She's Egyptian and she's royalty. She has privilege. She has almost as much privilege as one can have, but, but keep in mind, she is still a woman. And make no mistake, a woman who disobeys Pharaoh's command will have no place to hide. She will surely be killed just as readily as Shifra or Pua or Yochebed or Miriam. These women living within systems that subject them to or give them different kinds of power, they resist and they start a revolution. How do they do this? They conspire. They agree together to act together to save life, using every bit of power that they have against every bit of power that is trying to hold them back at the risk each of them, of everything they have, of their very life. The word conspire comes from the Latin meaning to breathe with, to breathe together. 
in that moment at the birthing stool, when that baby takes its first breath and Shifra and Pua hold his life in their hands, they breathe together with that baby and with the mother and they act together to save life. In that moment where Miriam watches Pharaoh's daughter pull the baby out of the water and as Bacha holds that baby in her hands, Bacha's eyes meet Miriam's eyes and they know, they know what is at stake here. They know what will happen to this Hebrew baby and they breathe together and they act together to save life. They conspire, they are, co-conspirators. The word co-conspirator has taken on a particular meaning within the movement for racial justice, the movement for black lives. For a long time in justice movements, we've learned and used the term ally, someone who stands with, and there's value in that. Co-conspirator carries with it, though, a critique of allyship, a critique of allyship when allyship doesn't go far enough. Activist scholar Dr. Bettina Love explains it with this story. She reminds us of Brie Newsom. You remember, Brie Newsom is the black woman who climbed a flagpole to take down the Confederate flag from the South Carolina State Capitol. She did this eight days after Dylan Root murdered black folks who were praying at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston. Brie Newsom and some others got together and said, that flag is coming down and a black woman is going to take it down. So they came up with a plan. Brie Newsom learned how to climb a flagpole. That's not something she knew how to do. She trained and practiced. They arranged bail money. And early that morning, she and James Tyson, a white colleague, sat in a car in an IHOP parking lot and waited for the call. When they got the all clear, they headed to the Capitol and to the flagpole. And Brie Newsom climbed that flagpole just like she had learned and practiced and James Tyson stood lookout right below. Now, as Dr. Bettina Love tells it, Tyson didn't stand outside the gate and just keep watch. He stood right there. The police approached, saw what was going on and they came up with their own plan. The police decided that they would tase the metal flagpole while Brie Newsom was still at the top and they would bring her down like that. And Tyson, standing right there, reached out and grabbed hold of the metal flagpole. Dr. Bettina Love says Tyson understood in that moment. He understood why he was there. And he knew that the police would not tase that pole with a white man holding on to it. She says that Brie Newsom and James Tyson are co-conspirators. They risked their lives for each other and for the dismantling of an unjust system, centering a black woman as she climbed that pole and took down the Confederate flag. Dr. Bettina Love says, you can't just stand at a distance and agree. You've got to put something on the line. Take a risk. Take a risk for somebody. You've got to be a co-conspirator. When Shifra and Pua, when they watch that baby being born as they hold him in their arms, they know what is at stake. 
they know the risk and they look at that child and they breathe together and they say to that child, we choose your life. When Bacha, the daughter of Pharaoh and Miriam, the daughter of Jochebed, stand there across a chasm of privilege and power, Egyptian princess Bacha holding that Hebrew child in her arms, Miriam and Bacha look into each other's eyes and they know what is at stake. They know the risk. And they look at that child and they breathe together and they say to that child, we choose your life. In just a few minutes, you all will convene a congregational meeting to discern whether to call me as installed pastor. There are many things that have led me to discern my way to yes. Among them is the sense in this community that we must engage the work of anti-racism as an essential part of the Christian life. And so I need to tell you that I come to this work with a whole lot of whiteness. <laughs> And what that means is that I come with so much that I don't know. And the more I learn, the more I see all that I don't know and all that I haven't known for years. The more I learn, the more I begin to see all the ways that I have moved through life, all the ways that I move through life every day within systems that advantage me and that disadvantage others. And I also come to this work a gay man, a gay man in the United States and in the Presbyterian Church USA. And I have known moments in my life, in my life in the Presbyterian Church USA, when I have needed someone to reach out and grab a hold of that flagpole, to put something at risk for me and for people like me. And I've known that here. Now I wanna be careful not to appropriate that sense of co-conspirator because we are talking about racism and I am white. But those experiences, those moments, those memories, when I remember, they convict me of times in my life when I have not stepped up and grabbed hold of the flagpole for others. And they challenge me and call me to do better. I'm a little embarrassed that it has taken me 53 years to realize that being a co-conspirator is really at the heart of what it means to try to live the life of Christ, to live together, to breathe together with something on the line, with humility enough to listen to those who have been harmed most, and then to put something at risk for the life and the well-being and the freedom of others. That is the heart of the life of Christ. That is, in fact, what God has done for us and for the whole world in Jesus Christ. This summer, we've been remembering that God created us and all that is in love. That God stood back and beheld all that God had made and said, oh, this is good. God created us for life in beloved community and with freedom. And with that freedom, we've gone our own way. When we or any part of us have found ourselves in bondage, God has come to bring us out into freedom. 
when we found ourselves in exile, God has sought us out and brought us home. And when we have oppressed and neglected the most vulnerable in our midst, God has sent prophets to call us to account and to tear down what needs tearing down so that something new and free can be built up. And when we needed God most, God came to us in Jesus Christ. God put something on the line, something at risk, God's own self in our flesh, living with us, suffering with us, knowing our pain and the deep pain of the world. And Jesus taught us and healed us, journeyed with us through the whole of life, even unto death, and showed us the way to even more life, resurrection life, then breathing into us the very spirit of Christ so that we might see visions and dream dreams, every single one of us. In Jesus Christ and in the spirit of Christ living in us, God continues to save us and the whole world from everything that does us harm. This is the good news of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. In our anti-racism work, in the midst of wildfires and pandemics, the work that is ours to do with humility and soberly is to breathe together and to live together a life where something is at stake, a life full of healing, compassion and love, a life that makes meaning in the world, that takes its place, our place, in God's loving, persistent, co-conspiring work to set the whole world free.